1: Holy cow, welcome back everybody. It's been a busy couple of a days. I like the last video I recorded was only, a, I mean, it was this Monday, but it feels like it's been like two weeks since I've recorded a video. Uh, so, welcome back everybody, all the, the faithful, loyal followers I have. I feel like I have a good group of people here. But uh, what's really cool is I put a post up like, yeah, this says one day ago. This really was two days ago. Um, but I put a post up on the youtube community feature here like that i don't know if a lot of people even know about this but this apparently will show up in your subscriber feed when i make posts here um but i put one up showing like the watch time and how much it's increased and just being thankful for being able to reach 2,000 subscribers so quick with this channel it's been a lot faster than i anticipated but since putting this post up two days ago i've gained about 500 subscribers so Welcome everybody new. I hope you guys enjoy the videos. Um, it, it's just really simple. I have a dividend growth portfolio. I update you on it every single week and give uh, what I think are important details in this type of portfolio. You guys are able to follow it and emulate the strategy. A lot of people I know, are they're using the portfolio, they're, they're doing the link as a starter point, like in the description. And they're using the same portfolio, but they'll customize it to themselves and change around some of the holdings and the percentages and make it so it fits them better. And that's an awesome thing to see. And I know there's been a ton of people, at least from what I've seen, that has started investing from this. So that's really, really cool. Uh, In this video, particularly, I'm going to give you an update on the portfolio. I'm going to talk about, obviously, the title of the video, what I think is the most difficult part of investing. I touched on this in the last video, but I'm going to go into more detail on it. And then I just wanted to give you a teaser of some of the news I'm gonna be going over. So one of them is that I made some adjustments to the allocation of some of my holdings. It's like on industrials, I changed it around a few things. Another one is one of the holdings, NLE Capital, did a dividend cut of 17%. So I'm gonna tell you my reaction on that. Um, Another thing was the Boeing CEO did this absolutely dismal press conference meeting with their shareholders. Hello. Hi. In the light of the crisis facing your company and in the interests of re-earning the trust of the flying public, have you considered resigning? And then if you haven't been following Elizabeth Holmes, I've been talking about her a lot in my series. So if you've watched my previous videos, you'll know about her. She's the one that came out with Theranos, did all of this uh, fictitious blood testing, and now she's being uh, charged with a whole bunch of different felonies, and she's spending her time living it up, the high life. So I'm gonna be talking about that. A lot of people think it was heartless that you were partying at Burning Man when your company was closing its doors. Last thing of news item is Kevin Hart was on the Joe Rogan podcast a couple weeks back, and I really like Kevin Hart. I've been to one of his comedy routines. So I was surprised to see him talk actually a lot about finance and financial knowledge. Oh, this is how you earn on your money. Oh, wow. I can gain wealth by investing in what? The stock world is what? All right, so if you stick around, you'll be able to see my response to those different news stories. But uh, first, I wanted to jump into the topic at hand, and that's the hardest part of what I think is the hardest part of a dividend growth portfolio. And I think that is right after you start a dividend growth portfolio. I think that is the hardest point in it. And there's a couple reasons why. One of them is because when you start a dividend growth portfolio, usually you start funding it with a lower dollar amount. If you're like me and you don't have... $50,000 Fifty thousand dollars just sitting on the sidelines, ready to be ready to be deployed. Uh, you start by putting in deposits, and a lot of people's initial deposits is like two hundred bucks or three hundred bucks, or just hundred dollars to get it going. And then you wait. The issue is, is when you have hundred dollar deposits spread between twenty to forty companies, the dividends that they pay are tiny. If I look at my dividends right now, let's just look at the past week and. and really just from four days ago to today. All right, so we have a dividend here, $24 from NRZ. This is four days ago, so 24 bucks from NRZ. It got lumped with the deposit and then purchased these different companies. Then we have a dividend here two days ago, $38.98. So that's pretty much $39 from two days ago. And that's LTC, uh, Toronto Dominion Bank, JP Morgan, NLY, Those all got lumped together, and then they purchased the fractional shares of all these different holdings, Waste Management, Verizon, and all these treasury bonds. Then I have from just a day ago, again, $19.52. So if you're keeping track, that's $24 four days ago, $39 two days ago, and then just $19.52 a day ago. That's all within one week. And to me, that's quite a bit of money in dividends. That feels like real money being paid out. If I started, if I didn't auto invest that and I just had it start to accumulate, uh, I would be making quite a bit of money in dividends right now. But I know what it's like to not be in this situation, to, to be in the part where you're starting and you're getting these like 30 cent, 20 cent dividends. If I could go back in time and if I really scrolled through this feed all the way to when I began funding my account, you gotta know when it started, I mean look at the account value when it started i had way less money to work with i initially put in like 700 bucks then i put in a couple thousand here and i took some money off to pay off a car like i said but then i was sitting here at like four thousand dollars for quite a while uh i i I worked really hard to contribute money but during this time even with like four thousand dollars my dividend payments split up between a bunch of different companies were were just pennies a lot of them were under a dollar they're like 30 cents or 40 cents in fact, I remember showing my wife one of the dividend payments. I think it was the first one I ever received, and I thought it was really cool. It shows up. And I, you know, I hand her the phone and I go, look, I got paid a dividend. And she could see that it was like 35 cents. And she's like, oh, wow, cool. And kind of a mocking tone because 30 cents is hardly anything, especially when you just start putting your money at risk. It doesn't feel like it's worth it right from the start. And that's how it is for a while when you're getting started if i look at my graph here's the month over month graph of my dividends if we rewind time way back to the start when i only had like a few thousand dollars you can see it started off and it takes time for the first dividends to come in but the whole first month that i really started putting my money at risk that i started getting paid dividends i made nine dollars and honestly that's not really enough money to have any sizable compounding effect that money would be split up Put into a bunch of different holdings and barely buy you more fractions of those holdings. It's something nine dollars is something, but it's not really enough to get the ball rolling uh, and then again, thirteen dollars fifteen dollars, but you can see the trend after a few months of consistently increasing the amount of capital I have consistently buying shares. This starts going up to the point where ninety two dollars twenty five seventy one hundred and eight last month. Uh, this gets to the point where it's actually a lot of money and it's a meaningful amount of money. Now, just in this week, I almost got paid $100, just in the past four days. So it's going up quite drastically. But there is certainly a level of grind there where you're just depositing money. You're getting paid these really insignificant portions. Seemingly, they don't feel like anything. Again, if I could go and scroll back, there's some that I, I barely got paid any in dividend. You do most the upfront work. To get this type of thing going, to have your money working for you, you have to put in most of the money to begin with, and then it starts speeding up. If you look if you look at this, my total timeline over an entire like year and three months, year and four months now, I've made $700. If I started with 35,000, that would be not a lot of income. I should be making more like 1,500, right? But I didn't start with that much money. Now, if I just filter this to just the last three months, the last quarter, I made $322. So now I'm averaging over $100 a month is what I'm averaging with this portfolio, which I think is really good income. And it gets constantly redirected back in the portfolio, constantly buying those shares. But my message in this video is to not get discouraged after you just deposit money. There's a couple of reasons why you can get discouraged. First is because you're putting your money at risk. You're only getting little tiny breadcrumbs of dividends. And a lot of times those don't feel meaningful. And the next thing is, is right when you start is when you're most vulnerable to going into the red. So if I look at the all timeline, I'm like pretty in the green right now, 3500 because I keep putting money in. Now, if the market swings down, I'm more likely to go in the red because I have a lot more money uh, that I have invested. I could go down. If the market went down like 10%, I would be in the red, right? But 3400 that's quite a bit of money in the green. If I just zoom into the one month timeline, look at this. I'm completely flat right now. Yesterday I was in the red. So if you started investing just a month ago, you could very well, like anytime this past month, you very well could be in the red. And so right when you start, it doesn't feel like you're getting paid a lot of dividends. A lot of times you go right into the red. Like you've never invested before, And you're thinking, wow, this sounds amazing. I'm looking at this person getting paid all these dividends. He has a nice cushion of of money that he's made in the green. And you're thinking, I want to do the same thing. So you put your money into this market that you've never done before. It's the first time you've really put your money at risk. And then your introduction, the time that you walk through the door, it instantly goes to the red and you start losing money. And a lot of times that can create a lot of doubt, a lot of, uh, am I making the right decisions? Did I buy the right holdings? Right off the bat, that's the introduction. And that's how it is for like half the people that invest. You don't know which way it's going to go right when you enter in. In fact, my brother, I was lucky enough, when I entered in the market, uh, December of 2017, the market was just racing up. All of 2017, if you look at it like a 2017 S&P 500 graph, market was going up like crazy. And I had a couple months where my portfolio had quite a bit of gains to where it gave me some cushion. And then of course it started to go down and up and I got a feeling for what it's like to lose money. At one point my returns were $1,800 and then they went completely flat. I even dipped into the red for one day. And so I've been through that rodeo where I've lost money and gained money and done that. But it can be discouraging if you start off and all you're doing is losing money for a while. That's what happened to my brother. He entered in right before the market dipped and his holdings that he bought dipped like for quite a bit. He was down thousands of dollars for the first three or four months, but he kept all of those holdings and now he's in the green three or $4,000. So the same thing, if you just started investing, you're more exposed to going into the red right away and it's not gonna feel like you're making a lot of money with dividends my message is just to keep pushing through. If you bought companies, remember the reasons that you bought them, the research that you did on them. And you want to hold these companies are ones that you want to hold for the long term. If you're doing dividend growth, these are companies that you want to uh, hold for the long term. If they're still paying you dividends, just keep holding on to them. I think that was probably the most difficult part for me was getting the ball rolling, feeling like I'm uh, creating something here. It takes a lot of time. You know, being able to put this much money away isn't easy, I don't think, for anybody, unless they have a super high income. It does take budgeting and dedication to continually contribute to a portfolio. So just keep doing it and eventually you'll get to a point where you can look and say, hey, in the past three months I've earned $322 in dividends. Just in the past week, I've been paid nearly a hundred bucks in dividends. Pretty cool to see. Just keep the end goal in mind and keep pushing through. Other than that, before I move on to the news, I wanted to talk about some changes in my portfolio. I know a lot of people are interested in the changes I do. So I'll go through and just show you quickly some adjustments I made. They're pretty minor adjustments. They're both in consumer and industrials. So if I go to the consumer pie here. All right. So consumers, this is what it's currently at. This is what you're accustomed to seeing. And then I moved it to this. The reason i bumped disney up is i think that their streaming service is going to do really well i know that they've just gone up recently but i still think that they have a lot of runway in the future i still think people are going to undervalue them i think their streaming service will do better than most people most people believe um other than that let's go to the industrials pie real quick and this is what it was previously at so i had you know boeing ups utx and so on then if i change the order here this is the target allocation i bumped up unp and waste management to the top Really, it's kind of a toss-up between what I these companies that I wanted at the top. I all think that they're great dividend growth companies with predictable businesses. Uh, UPS, I, I bumped down to the bottom. That was the biggest change I made. And the reason why, like I said in the, the past video, uh, I just think that they've grown pretty large and I don't see a ton of ways where they're gonna innovate and continue to expand to be able to support their dividend. So I could see their dividend growth kind of tapering off. And a lot of these companies, I think, do have a lot of market cap and and different ways of of expanding and taking greater market share. Um, This doesn't... So none of this sells any of these holdings. I didn't sell anything. All this does is is, uh, make it so that future funding allocates these to different percentages. It's not a huge difference. Like I said, you could probably change yours around and be fine in, in different combinations. But this is what I feel most comfortable with as of standing right now. And I'll continue to keep updated if I make any other changes to my portfolio the other big news was in the real estate sector nly annally capital this this holding right here that i do have a a good amount of money in over a thousand bucks in this one just announced that they did a dividend cut of five cents per dividend payment so normally their dividend payment is 30 cents they just lowered it to 25 cents And of course, I got a lot of messages on on various medias, on Reddit and Discord and YouTube and asking, what is my reaction to this? What am I going to do? If we rewind all the way back to my best REITs video, I could actually find the exact minute marker of where this happens. I'm talking about my rules for when I buy a company and when I sell a company. And for some companies, I say that they don't follow this buy and sell rule of I sell them if they cut their dividend at all. And the reason why is because they're not really dividend growth companies if you actually look at nrz or nly let's go to the graphs on them so we're here on the dividend scoreboard and the first thing that sticks out is that it has a 12.3 percent yield if i go to the actual dividend history here you can see that this doesn't really have the pattern of a dividend growth company this company just seems to pay whatever it can at any given time it'll just pay as much as it can and that's really what it is the reason why is it's a mortgage rate These super high yielding companies, you cannot expect them to always maintain their dividends and not adjust it. If they did that, they would bankrupt themselves because when they start making lower amounts of money and the business cycle happens with interest rates and uh, mortgage yields and all these different things, they use a little bit more complex of a business than just like an equity REIT. I have a couple different companies like this. One of them is NRZ and one of them is NOI. The reason that I keep these in my portfolio, even though they're not really like the tried and true dividend growth holdings is because they're very high yield and I use their cash flow to fund the purchase of other shares. If you remember, if I go back to my activity statement here, if I look at two days ago, NLY paid $26 and that helped purchase different shares of waste management and Verizon and all my bond ETFs. Then if I go back here to four days ago, you can see NRZ, the other mortgage rate, paid $24. And that helped fund with my cash deposit these different purchases. And that's the reason I keep them. These are heavy hitters. These companies pay really high dividends. Even with, even with this company lowering its dividend to instead of paying the 30 cents to paying 25, the dividend yield is still gonna be over 10%. And so I in no way am gonna sell this over that news. And you can see that the stock itself, if you actually go to the stock itself, it's down like 2% on this news. So it went down a little bit, but you can tell that a lot of investors have the same attitude where a 5 cent dividend cut is not gonna cause them to sell it. 2% is a pretty a pretty mild move on news of a dividend cut. That's pretty mild as a, as a 2% lowering. So I hope that explains it. I know that most of the companies that I hold are pretty simple, If they really cut their dividend, if they slash their dividend or 50%, I'm going to go ahead and sell them and just put the money into something else. But there's some companies that I don't follow those rules with. And you got to take this stuff by a case-by-case basis. So if they slash their dividend by 17%, which is what NOI did, 30 to 25 is a 17% reduction. That is not enough for me to sell it. But if they slash their dividend 80%, I probably would sell it. So it just depends on the situation and the specific holdings that you have. For the most part, for these other holdings that are expected, they're real dividend growth companies, and they're expected to continually increase their dividend. If they do slash their dividend, I'm going to go ahead and sell them. So I hope that helps and clears that up. Alrighty, so moving on to that, let's jump into some news. This popped up on the top page of Reddit videos a few days back, and it's the CEO of Boeing, Dennis Millenberg, and he's attending this shareholder question and answer, where he's there to try to resolve their concerns about the new Boeing airplanes and the MCAS system updates and how he's going to restore public trust. And I just thought that this was a pretty dismal way of portraying this. What he did was try to spread blame around to the pilots and to everybody else and act like the MCAS system was just just one link in the events of things that happened for the plane to go down. And if they can break that, just that one link, they can break all the different events. So let's take a look at that. Dennis, you have said a couple of times we own it. What <clears throat> mistakes do you own? You've also mentioned that uh, you will earn and re-earn trust. Yep. There are a lot of passengers who are afraid of the MAX. Why should they trust Boeing that it will be safe with this upgrade?
0: We know that in both accidents, there was a chain of events that occurred. Uh, one of the links in that chain was the activation of the MCAS system because of erroneous angle of attack data. That was a common link in both uh, accidents. We know that we can break that link in the
1: chain. That is- okay. So there he says, we know that we can break, we can break that link in the chain. So what he's doing there is spreading blame. He's saying, That MCAS system is just one link in a chain of events. If we break that chain, then the plane wouldn't have come down, right? Let's take a trip to memory lane here. This is the horizontal stabilizer of the plane. This is the part that if this is angled upwards, the nose of the plane goes down. If this is angled downwards, the nose of the plane goes up. What the MCAS system did was it tried to detect if there was a stall position of the plane, meaning the nose was up. And then what it would do is put this up so that the nose would go down. Well, the angle of attack sensors that detect if the nose is up or down gave erroneous data and that set this so that it stabilized it where this was up and the nose of the plane went down and it kept doing that over and over and over again and that set the plane downward into a nose dive until it eventually crashed and originally my thought was because what the news came out with was boeing said well there's a whole procedure that you follow if this type of thing happens If the MCAS system's going off, all you have to do is disable the automatic trim, these different switches, and then you can manually control these stabilizers here. Now, let's take a look at how difficult that is to do. Here's a video of these two pilots demonstrating the amount of pressure on manual trim if you're trying to stabilize the plane manually. My God. Yeah, the thing is that with a higher speed, the the, the forces on the stabilizer will be higher and higher as well. So it will become almost impossible to move it. but So now we are at about three degrees. yeah, we're still about three degrees away from full nose down trim. and I am using everything that I have. Okay, so these two guys are demonstrating the issue with what Boeing says is they just you know their easy solution. Back to this. When the plane is in a nose down position it means it's traveling incredibly fast because you're gaining speed as you're going down and what that does is the air pressure that comes and hits against this horizontal stabilizer puts tremendous amount of pressure that the pilots could not manually move so they they were stuck in an impossible situation this whole mcas system this problem that boeing had it wasn't just one chain link in a big chain of events that is totally misleading because that makes the impression that there was a bunch of different links that also contributed to it. This was pretty much the only link. And I get that the Boeing CEO, he's, his job is to protect the company, to do damage control. Uh, he probably has a team of lawyers. In fact, I looked it up and they did just hire a federal judge, a previous federal judge as a like the counsel over this because they're expecting a lot of litigation so they know that they're going to get sued over and over and over again and i think what the ceo here is doing is protecting himself as much as he can and the company from future litigation they know that if they just openly say yeah there is design flaws we just dropped the ball that it would probably open them up for more litigation but regardless i mean the effect is the same when the company tries to act like it's just the pilot's fault when they're not and they're dead uh it comes off as pretty cowardly and dismal. That's the response it got. I mean, that's the response it got on Reddit. That's the response I see everywhere in the public. So from a public perspective, it doesn't look good, even though he's probably being advised by an army of lawyers to say this. In fact, if we go back to the video, there's other parts where they even the shareholders even call him out on this and say, how is that not a design flaw? Let's listen to a little bit more of it.
0: But you, said, you said that it's, it's operated as design. You couldn't have possibly designed a system that would activate 21 times, pushing the nose of the plane down to the point of an unrecoverable dive.
1: So you can even see right there, this shareholder is saying you couldn't have possibly, he's saying, the Boeing CEO there is saying that he designed it this way. They designed the plane to act this way. It followed their standard guidelines and all of that. And the and the shareholder is exactly right, he's saying you couldn't have possibly designed this system so that one point of failure would activate 20 times causing the plane to come down. And then listen to his response here.
0: Again, if you take a look at the end-to-end system procedure that's assigned with this, so in the case of an MCAS failure scenario, uh, there's something called a runaway stabilizer procedure, which is a memory item in the cockpit. If that kind of scenario occurs and you go through the checklist, and, again, that checklist was published as part of the recent Ethiopian preliminary report, if you look through that checklist, it calls out actions that would be taken around power management and pitch management of the airplane. It also refers to the cutout switches that after an activation that was not pilot-induced, that you would hit the cutoff switches. Uh, And in some cases, uh, those procedures were not completely followed. So. three cases, though, the pilots struggled with that process, either recognizing what was happening or implementing those those steps. Uh, The first Lion Air flight, it was a jump seat captain who told the flight crew what to do. And the second one, it doesn't appear that they did that at all. The Ethiopian folks generally followed that checklist, were not able to recover.
1: That's exactly right. And I just showed you the video. They tried to follow those steps. They still couldn't recover the plane, but he's still spreading blame to him. So not a great look by the CEO. Another lady, the one that I I teased in the clip, she asked him if he was going to resign so we can look at his response to that. Hello. Hi. In the light of the crisis facing your company and in the interests of re-earning the trust of the flying public, have you considered resigning?
0: I think the important thing here, again, is we're very focused on safety. And I can tell you that both of these accidents weigh heavily on us as a company. I've had the privilege of working for the Boeing company for uh, 34 years.
1: Yeah, spoiler alert, he just totally dodges the question, says they're focused on safety, and then reminds him of his tenure. So he's not planning on resigning. They uh, have hired new lawyers, they're going to be going through this, this is going to be an ongoing thing that gives a black eye to Boeing. Uh, I do think that it seems really bad right now for the company, of course, but a lot of times, I mean, a few years pass, different news cycles happen, and this becomes old news. That's really, it's a sad thing because a lot of lives are lost, but that really is the nature of things. When another big event will happen and it will take place at this one, that's just the nature of the news cycle. And that's what they're probably waiting for at Boeing, just for this type of thing to be fixed. They can't have another accident happen again, But this type of thing to to be fixed and then they can move on from it and something else happens that takes its place out of the the media's attention. With this whole big thing going on with Boeing, I was reminded of another company, Waste Management. This is one that I got a lot of messages of of people just saying, you know, Waste Management, it's such a, a boring, predictable company. Let's just buy that. You know, that's an easy company to see. All they do is they take people's trash to landfills, right? Boring and predictable business. But if you go back in time with this company, they had huge fraud in the late 90s. Uh big accounting fraud. It was like one of the biggest frauds before the times of like Enron and Bernie Madoff and those type of things. Where they pretty much they had all the leaders artificially inflate their earnings. They didn't really depreciate some of their depreciating assets like their trucks and stuff as much as they were and they did that in order to hit all these landmarks so all the all the executives could hit these bonuses. They were only c- conditional on the company performing well. And this is from the SEC. This goes into that whole thing where it says, Our complaint describes one of the most egregious accounting frauds we have ever seen. For years, these defendants cooked the books, enriched themselves, preserved their jobs, and duped unsuspecting shareholders. So, even a company like Waste Management, do you think as boring as possible? can have crazy stuff happen to it. Boeing's not the only company. There's gonna be things that happen to other of these holdings that are just totally unsuspecting that you would not be able to predict happen. And that's just kind of the nature of it. This next thing is honestly pretty incredible. Elizabeth Holmes, who, again, she's, she just posted bail for $500,000. She's facing 11 felony accounts, enough to put her to prison forever. She's lost hundreds of millions of dollars of various people and and people that believed in her and funded her project and she's harmed a numerous amounts of patients by giving them falsified testing data. And we see screenshots come out of her at all these different events, at the Burning Man event. And it's, it's just incredible that, how some people act like this. She doesn't act like she has a care in the world. It's like having the time of her life. They Actually, there was a news report that Inside Edition saw her running outside and decided to confront her. A lot of people think it was heartless that you were partying at Burning Man. When your company was closing its doors. So she doesn't respond anything. And they know like, of course, she looks a little different right now. She's not wearing her black turtleneck or anything. You can see how much of what she was doing is a facade. So it'll be interesting to see and follow this case and how the, the trial goes with it. Because she she's facing those serious charges. And to me, she's kind of like scoffing in the face of him. Reminds me, honestly, this whole thing reminds me a lot of Martin Shkreli when he was before Congress testifying and just smiling and smirking and acting like it wasn't a big deal. She's doing, in my opinion, a lot of the same thing. She acts like this isn't even a big deal. She's just going out and acting like she's not facing anything. So I don't know if this is like a strategy or if she's just trying to live it up before she goes to jail or what's going on. But in any way, so she's uh, really interesting to follow. And the last thing I wanted to share I thought was really cool, uh, it's Kevin Hart on the Joe Rogan podcast. Like I said, I'm a huge fan of Kevin Hart, so I watched the whole thing. And I was surprised to see at like the last part of it, he talks a lot about financial knowledge and how he made all these plans. He actually is teaming up with Jamie Dimon, the, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, to try to help educate the people that he can relate to the most, black youth into financial knowledge and how he wants to show them that the cool thing is in longevity, in longevity of finance, not just getting like, you know, the cool whatever for the now. I recommend you guys listen to this. I think it's pretty cool to see. I'll play a little clip of it here. And for me, that younger generation of black people that don't understand the cool thing is in financial longevity. Not in the now. It's not in the moment for jewelry, not in the moment for the car. It's in the longevity. So he talks a lot about that, and I think it's pretty cool. He talks a lot about how having financial stability, financial longevity is far more important and far cooler than having just stuff in the now. And I agree with the sentiment there totally. I'm glad that somebody of celebrity status like him is able to deliver that message to a a really big audience. So I think that's awesome. But anyway, I hope you guys have a good week. I'll have another video soon where i go over and answer a lot of questions we've had a lot of new people a lot of new questions um as well as we're going to be reviewing another section of the portfolio so anyway you guys have a good one we'll see you later